Let's open the Word of God to Isaiah and the 34th chapter. Isaiah 34. God sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Judah's perpetual enemies, including Edom, and other neighboring nations around them. God chose Nebuchadnezzar to be his servant. He called Nebuchadnezzar a king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar, if you didn't do it his way, he said, I'll chop you in pieces and turn your house into a dunghill. How's that for a piece of legislation? And it didn't take long to pass. And he didn't ask what other people thought about it. And he didn't care what Congress did to it. He executed it himself because he had absolute despotic power over the Chaldean or Babylonian Empire. And God called him his servant and raised him up to do some great things of judgment against nations. And he did them. And we can read about him in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, especially. He is mentioned here in Isaiah, but not as much as in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The enemy at the time of Isaiah was the Assyrian Empire, and therefore Sargon and Tiglath-Pileser and Esarhaddon and Sennacherib and others, because that's when Isaiah lived. But Jeremiah and Ezekiel lived under the Babylonian Empire, so if you want to know more about Nebuchadnezzar, you would read in those two major prophets. Isaiah 34, I have given you in advance a small outline of the chapter, that in the first four verses, there's a terrible warning given by God to all the nations in the area. Now it says all the nations of the earth, but it doesn't mean that. The Lord isn't coming after the Cherokee nation nor any of the natives in the Brazilian jungle. He's coming after those nations that are in the area of Israel that had persecuted his people, especially the tribe of Judah. That's in the first four verses. Then in verses 5 through 8, he identifies for us, and we thank him for that, that we have a signal what chapter 34 is about, and that is Edom. But it's here called Idu. Mera, Idumea, Idumea, the Greek or Roman form of the word Edom, which is a name given to Esau. Esau means hairy. Edom means red because he sold his birthright for red pottage. You could say that he also came out red and hairy all over, but that's why he was called Esau for hairy. But he was called Edom for red because of the red pottage that Jacob had that he sold his birthright for. And the Greeks and the Romans called the territory of Edom, Idumea. And so we have that given to us in verse 6. And one of their great cities of Basra is mentioned there. And Idumea is in verses 5 and 6. It's only used four times in the Bible. And two of them are here. And we thank the Lord for that because it tells us quite a bit about setting the context for Isaiah 34, verses 9 through 15, Edom would be perpetually desolate because God was going to destroy it forever. Verses 16 and 17 are precious verses that I hope that you might enjoy from a different angle when we get to them, and that is Scripture guarantees fulfillment. Because notice verse uh, 16, Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. It's that simple. Read and believe. Seek ye out of the book of the Lord everything that has been said about Edom. It is certainly going to happen. And so scripture guarantees it. If it's been written down in the scriptures of God, that means it's going to happen. And so it ends up on that note. And in the second service, by the grace of God, we'll get to Isaiah 35, which will be of a very different color and a very different story. And that will be the descendants of Jacob the rent redeemed and ransomed ones brought back out of Babylon and extending all the way to the times of Messiah, which include us by implication as being part of the Israel of God. Isaiah 34. We want to set the context always in the chapters of the Bible, but especially in Isaiah because some of his chapters are obscure. 35 is very obscure. There's no tips in it. Well, we, we do have a few. They're just more obscure. In 35, you don't have Idumea. You have Zion there toward the end. 
It's only 10 verses long, but Isaiah 34 helps us set the stage for 35 because it is talking about coming back from the Babylonian captivity because the ransom of the Lord will return and what he's going to do to Edom. And then he sets the stage for Cyrus releasing those prisoners of God in Babylon and bringing them back to rebuild the city and the temple. But that's in chapter 35. We do look for the context. We have Idumea or Edom clearly mentioned right here in verses 5 and 6. So that helps us. This chapter is about Esau's family tree. It's about Esau's descendants. By comparing what we find in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel, we know what man and what military God used to punish Edom, at least initially with the greatest blast, and that was Nebuchadnezzar. Because there's chapters in both of those major prophets about Nebuchadnezzar and including his judgment of Edom. Now we have learned as we approach the middle part of the book of Isaiah, we have learned that God has judged the enemies of Judah. In chapters 7 and 8, he judged Israel and Syria. Israel was an enemy of Judah. Judah was the two tribes that remained faithful to God and had their center of worship in Jerusalem. The ten tribes were those ten tribes that had fallen to idolatry and had rebelled after a civil war against Judah. And they had set their centers of religion in Bethel and Dan, and they were two golden calves, two separate nations. And Israel had joined with Syria to fight Judah, but that was dealt with in chapter 7 and 8. God took care of Assyria, the empire, in chapters 10, 22, and 29 through 33. He took care of Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, where we run upon the word Lucifer. Moab in chapters 15 and 16. Syria in chapter 17. Ethiopia in 18. Egypt in 19 and 20. And Tyre in 23. And that's what Isaiah is. It's a lot of promises of God's judgment upon the enemies of this now very small and reduced nation called Judah. They had lost 10 of the 12 tribes. And so God had a lot of promises by Isaiah on what he would do to their enemies. He is going to sum up the judgment of all Judah's area enemies in the first four verses. Then he's going to use Edom as his focus because of their perpetual hatred against the Jews. And then he's going to promise Israel with promises of better times and comfort in the Messiah as we get to chapter 35. Esau was Jacob's brother. Esau, I'm going to say it again so that you'll remember it. Esau means hairy. He was also called Edom. Esau was called Edom because he sold his birthright for red pottage. You can find that in the book of Genesis. Idumea is the Greek or Roman word for describing the country of Edom. And the country of Edom was the country of Esau, where his descendants went by their dukes. Their dukes are described in the Bible, and that's where they went and settled in Mount Seir. So whenever you find Mount Seir in the Bible, you know that you're dealing with Edom. And the descendants of Esau, when you find Basra in the Bible, you're dealing with the descendants of Esau or Edom. God had a curse upon Esau's descendants, which were now the inhabitants of Edom. All of God's operations in time are the results of eternal decrees. Right. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Acts chapter 15 and verse 18. And God made choice before the children were ever born in the verses that I opened with this morning, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 about verse 10 down through about verse 15. He had made a choice that the, his decrees of election might stand. That the younger brother, the younger twin, Jacob would rule over the older twin, Esau. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even Esau and his descendants for Isaiah 34. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16, 4. It's a powerful verse. Amen. It's a verse we should always remember. God told Rebekah while Esau was in her that Jacob would be over him. In Genesis chapter 25. Why don't we go there? We don't have time to do so, but let's do it anyway. Genesis chapter 25. Just... For me to tell you about a fight going on in poor Rebecca's womb. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Well, Abraham had eight sons. 
But there's only one that counted. God makes differences. Abraham begat Isaac. I'm in Genesis 25, 19. Now verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paden Aram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her. She's got a wrestling match going on inside. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And amen. That's the word of the Lord to us about those two twins. Esau was profane in things religious. He married Hittite women. Profane. Isaac married from hundreds of miles away to marry someone that feared the Lord, Rebekah. He required Jacob to go back those hundreds of miles as well to marry someone that feared the Lord. Anyone that doesn't fear the Lord is off limits. And any parent that allows it is an accomplice in the death of their children. Because that's how you ruin children. It's to let them marry outside the Lord. Esau was profane about it. When he saw that Isaac and Rebekah appreciated Jacob marrying in the Lord, he then went and married a, an, he went and married a third wife of the Ishmaelites. Just profane in his thinking. Well, I didn't marry a Hittite the third time around. Yeah, but you married an Ishmaelite. Profane. There's a huge difference among men. Some are holy and they do what is right, and some are profane and do what is convenient. And let us mark the difference and let us make the difference in our families. Edom, or the descendants of Esau, I'm giving you a little history of them, would not allow Israel to pass through from Egypt to Canaan. Two million people, 600,000 men, plus their wives and children, trying to escape Egypt to get to Canaan. If you looked at the map I sent you last night, had to go through Edom. And they sent the... Look at Numbers chapter 20. I shouldn't do this either. But Numbers 20. Some of you may have read it last evening because it was suggested extra reading if you had the time and the energy to read a little bit more. Numbers chapter 20, verse 14. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. That means the ruler of Esau's descendants. Now listen to this, kind language. Thus saith thy brother Israel. Thus saith thy brother Israel. See, Jacob got his name changed, so it wasn't Jacob anymore. It wasn't Jacob and Esau. It was Israel and Esau. It wasn't Esau and Jacob. It was Esau and Israel. Notice the kind language. Thus saith thy brother Israel. Thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us. How our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, 215 years, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. And Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with the sword. And I could go on and read more. Uh, that was not wise. That just wasn't good. The Bible says in Psalm 105, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. They... Was that a humble, gentle, personal, emotional appeal yes, right. to Edom to let them through? Yep. I'm just letting you know the character of Esau and the character of his descendants. Mm -hmm. What does it say? The apples don't fall too far from the tree? Or is it nuts? <laughs> it's a rotten apple in this case, and it's a bad nut. It's Esau. David crushed them 
and put them in subjection to Israel so that they paid tribute for a long time. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the husband of Athaliah, for your memories, allowed a rebellion, though he killed a number of them. Amaziah, which was Uzziah's father, just before Isaiah becomes a prophet, defeated and disgraced them. He killed 10,000 in battle. He took 10,000 captives and took the 10,000 captives to the top of a mountain and threw them off a cliff and broke them in pieces at the bottom of it. Do you think that makes for good family reunions? That's what, he, that's what Amaziah did. When Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, Esau's descendants cheered Babylon on and participated in it, and God saw every single action. Look at Psalm 137. Psalm 137, with this groundwork, we can go through these verses quickly. I don't want to take forever on Isaiah 34. Psalm 137, verse 7. Let me tell you the context. Look at verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. So we know what, we know what this is about. All you got to do is read that first verse, and it tells you this is about those poor Jews that were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and are being hauled 900 miles away to Babylon. And they're having a rest here by a river, and they want them to sing the songs of Zion to them. They want to make fun of their captives. And so here's the psalm. It gets to verse 7. It says, Remember, O Lord. Remember, O Lord. The children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem. In the day when Nebuchadnezzar took the city of Jerusalem. Remember the children of Edom who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundations thereof. That is not R-A-I-S-E, meaning to lift it up and build it. It's R-A-S-E, meaning to level it to the ground. Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Remember, O Lord, what they said. The Lord never forgets such a prayer. And this is an inspired prayer. And the Lord did not forget. Right. Trust, if you're, you know, at Isaiah 34, if you're there, all you have to do is look down to verse 5 it's the people of my curse it's the people of my judgment or verse 8 it's the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion oh it's very clear the Lord remembers these things God saw what Esau did as fratricide murder of an innocent brother in the time of his calamity look at Amos if you're able to find Amos, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Joel and then Amos. Amos chapter 1. If you can't get there, I've got to go ahead and read it. I'm sorry I don't have it on the screen for you. Amos 1.11. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because he did pursue his brother, fratricide. Because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Esau was perpetually angry and the descendants of Esau were perpetually angry at the descendants of Jacob. But I will send a fire upon Teman, one of the cities of Edom, which shall devour the palaces of Basra, a capital city. So there we have it in Amos. Look back to Joel. I'm trying to find books that are close by. Joel chapter 3 and verse 19. Egypt shall be a desolation. Joel 3.19. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. The Lord saw these neighbors who had been in subjection when they saw that God was chastening Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar had leveled it, they jumped in. They cheered the Chaldeans on, and they participated in every way they could. Where they could get their hands on captives, they did. The rest of the Bible tells us this, and sold those captives. They killed who they could, and they took as much loot as the Babylonians allowed them to have from that territory. And the Lord remembers every detail of it. 
And in this series about Isaiah, I have tried from the very beginning to tell you that the prophets of the Old Testament are not that complicated. That if you'll read them carefully, you will find that they are often dealing with the very same historical events. And so notice what I'm doing with you. I'm showing you that many of these prophets had something to say about the descendants of Esau or Edom. The minor prophets and the major prophets. There's whole chapters in Ezekiel about Edom. There's whole chapters in Jeremiah about it. And I've just shown you in Joel and Amos. Let's keep turning to the right. Amos, what comes next? Obadiah. What's Obadiah about? I don't know. It just sounds scary. Obadiah sounds very scary. The name itself is just a worry to me. Obadiah. One message. God's going to judge Edom. Look at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised, the pride of thine heart, and so forth and so on. The whole book of Obadiah is one chapter, 21 verses. And look at the last verse. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. Amen. And Esau won't have any part of it. That's Obadiah. And I've already shared with you Malachi recently, and Malachi, I've already shared it from this pulpit this morning, that in Malachi, the Jews said to the Lord, how, how, how should we know that you love us? And the Lord said, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Look at the difference. He said, go to your borders. Look from your borders and see the difference between how I treat Judah and how I treat Edom. I am helping you people rebuild and have already done so. When they try to rebuild, I will tear down because they are the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. That's what the Bible says. So that hatred of Esau before he was even born extended to a group of people that the Lord had, indig had indignation against them forever. Judas Maccabees defeated them again after Nebuchadnezzar. John Hyrcanus in 126 BC defeated them again. And Emperor Trajan of the Roman Empire in 105 AD eliminated them from the earth. They have never been known. Not a single one has ever been spotted. There is nothing left. And the prophecy about Edom is just like the prophecy about Babylon. When we looked in Isaiah 13, we saw the Medes identified as God's sword against Babylon. But they came in and took the city, and the city of Babylon lasted for hundreds of years. And yet, Isaiah 13 in its entirety, very much like Isaiah 34. I mean, very much. It's just that Isaiah 13 has the object of God's wrath being Babylon, and the object of God's wrath in Isaiah 34 is Edom. But the end of Isaiah 13 is that Babylon would be a waste, and it wouldn't be rebuilt, and it would be the place for doleful creatures to dwell. Right. But it didn't happen for hundreds of years. And that's why I'm sharing with you about Edom. It didn't happen for hundreds of years. Nebuchadnezzar drew the first blow and the major blow and reduced them, like I've read from some of these prophecies. And then it was others after him that did it until the emperor Trajan. But remember, in the time of Peter, there was still a Babylon. But after 105 A.D., no one can find one. Just That's a little history of Esau and a nation on this earth. I want that last verse of Obadiah again. I'm sorry. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. Judas Maccabees, John Hyrcanus, Emperor Trajan. But he wasn't really a Jew. He wasn't a Jew. Did you know that Herod the Great was the son of an Edomite? Herod the Great that murdered the little children? Herod the Great. But they were wiped out. And so now we get to read the prophecy of it in Isaiah 34. Before we go to Isaiah 34, I know I've said before a few times, Look at Isaiah 63. I just want to slow you down about Isaiah 63. We'll get to it in the process of time. 
we're going fast through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 63. We have a hymn in our hymnals, and I know that some of you like it, and some of you like it a lot. Is it scriptural? Just, that's all I'm going to say. Just going to read a few verses, because it sounds so much like Isaiah 34. Isaiah 63. Who is this that cometh from Edom? with dyed garments from Basra. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Okay, all I want to say is, before leaving this passage, is when you think about that song and you read this passage, the blood on his garments is not the blood of redemption. Right. It's the blood of his enemies. It's the sword being bathed in blood of Isaiah 34. It's not redemption. It's not atonement. It's not a substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Just keep that in mind and make sure we read these things properly. Back to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. The blood that is going to melt the mountains in Isaiah 34 is not the blood of redemption. It's the blood of his enemies. Oh, we're in good shape. With all that background, we can just blow right through these verses. Let's just do it. First section, verses 1 through 4, a terrible warning to all nations. I read to you the word of God distinctly, and then I'll give you the sense. Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world, and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them, he hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. And all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. Amen and amen. The first four verses of Isaiah 34. Isaiah, the prophet of the Most High God, called the world to hear about their own ruin. Do you know that in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah had to go visit all these neighboring nations and take them a cup of wine and make them drink it? And the cup of wine was the wrath of God? Isn't that great for an ambassador? I'd like to have a luncheon meeting with your king. King, I have some wine. Would you drink this, please? This wine means that God's fury is upon your nation, and if you'll submit to Nebuchadnezzar, he'll let you survive. But if you won't submit to the Chaldean coming 900 miles away, he's going to destroy you from off the earth. That, you say, is that really in the Bible? That is really in the Bible. That's, that's Jeremiah 25. But then a couple chapters later, Jeremiah makes himself a yoke and he goes and shows those same kings, this is what you're going to look like when Nebuchadnezzar gets done with you. It's just beautiful stuff in the Bible. Those were powerful preachers. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And so here's Isaiah telling these nations to come and hear the warning of what God is going to do. Jeremiah, 100 years later, also gave the call and the warning. In the two chapters, 25 is the wine, 27, the yoke. And in chapter 49, about Edom. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to come for about 110 years. See, Isaiah's, Isaiah comes first. That's why the prophets start with... Isaiah, he comes first. Jeremiah comes about 100 years later. From the last year of Hezekiah's reign, the last year of Hezekiah's reign, not when he was sick, after the 15 years, to the, the city of Jerusalem falling, 
is, is about 92 years. I round it off to 100 for you, just so that you'll know the difference between Isaiah and Jeremiah is about 100. Because most of Isaiah is before the last year of Hezekiah, and most of Jeremiah is before the city was taken. Just, just for your comfort and knowledge of how these prophets work together. World history is God's story. The work of Almighty God among the nations for His will. The message was not to all that is in the earth, for it was only to Judah's neighbors. But it uses that kind of language. And we get used to that because the only earth that God cared about, and I'm sorry for anyone else, listen, he didn't care about where I came from. The only part of the earth the Lord cared about was a little tiny part of it that we now call the Middle East. Right. Because in the middle of it was his people. The rest of the earth and what they did, he didn't care what the Cherokee were doing. He didn't care that the Sioux and the Crow Indians were fighting. He didn't care about any of that stuff. Because he cared about the nations right around his people, Israel, and they're right in the middle of the Middle East, Assyria's on the north, Egypt's on the south, Philistines are on the west, Moab's on the east. I mean, it's just all right there in that little part of the world. And so when it says, upon the earth and the world, it's referring to those nations in that vicinity. Like when it says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the earth should be taxed. Well, what did the Seminole Indians pay out of South Florida? Come on. Let's wake up. And that's got the word all, and it's got the word world, and we understand that all the world is the taxable Roman world. And that's it. The taxable Roman world. And so this is a call to the nations that God is going to judge them in verse 1. Verse 2. The indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and His fury upon all their armies. Wow! That is the message of the prophet. God is angry with you nations, and He is going to destroy you in His indignation and His fury. Then I want you to show you something about reading your Bibles. Be careful about verb tenses. I've only shown you to be careful about verb tenses in Romans chapter 4, which is from Genesis chapter 17, and Romans chapter 8, where the past tense is used for something that hasn't even happened yet. But that's because God can use verb tenses like that. But in the prophets, the prophets will jump verb tenses around. Watch. Here we have verse 2, and it says in the present tense, The indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, present, and His fury upon all their armies, implied present. He hath utterly destroyed them, past, though it's 110 years away. He hath delivered them to the slaughter, 110 years away. Because His decree that He's going to do it is as good as the act. And that is how certain God is. And the next verse, verse 3, is going to jump to the future. Look at the third verse. Their slain also shall be cast out. Well, shall means it's a future tense. So we've got present, past, future. What is it? 110 years away. That's why we read Jeremiah and Ezekiel to understand Isaiah. You say, could it be talking about 10 different events here? It could, but it's not. Because all you have to do is read your Bible to know what's under consideration here. And you can see present, past, future, all describing the same event that Isaiah was calling the nations of the earth to. We don't need to spend any more time on that. I just want to try to slow you down when you read the Bible to think and be careful. And that's, that's my job, and I try to do it for you. And does it add to the difficulty of some of these passages? Is the Pope a Catholic? Yes, it makes it difficult, but we can sort it out by the Bible. That's why it says comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Verse 3, I mean, verse 2 tells us that our God has indignation against people and that he has fury upon their armies. You know, that, that God isn't even preached today, hardly. But we believe it because the Bible says it. Our God can be filled with indignation against how many nations? All nations, all the nations in context. How many armies? All the armies in context. All the armies and nations around Israel. He has his chosen people called his church, and the rest of them he is indignant against, and his fury is against, and the Bible says he is angry with the wicked. How often? How long? Every day. And so we have it there. And this is, this is the, the warning about the Babylonian coming into this part of the world. Verse 3, Their slain also shall be cast out. 
They won't be properly buried. They'll just be thrown out so that their, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses because they're not properly buried and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. There'll be so much blood flowing down from higher ground to lower ground that it will look like the mountains are melting with blood. There will be so many dead corpses, they can't properly bury them, and they'll have to throw them out in the street, throw them out in the fields, throw them out in the gutter, and the stink of them is going to come up. This is God and how he writes the Bible against those who want to worship idols and then pick on his people. This is the God of the Bible. This God, if you get used to him by reading the Bible, you'll understand that an eternal torment in hell is fitting for this most wise, holy, just, and severe God. You know, people today do not believe there's a hell anymore. Universalism, that everyone's going to be saved, is the most popular, fastest-growing ism in the world. That no one goes to hell because they've been presented to God that hell is incompatible with Him. That God that loves everybody and has a wonderful plan for your life, like so many teach, well, that God wouldn't have a hell. And I agree with that. At least they're being logically consistent that their God wouldn't have a hell. He wouldn't. He couldn't. It's contrary to his nature. <laughs> not ours. Oh, not ours. If he doesn't have a hell, there's a problem. But he does have a hell. And look at how he writes about his enemies. You say, that was Rebecca's little boy. She nursed him on one side. Can you see my crocodile tears? My heart pumps peanut butter for all such thoughts. While they were in her womb, he had already made his decision. This is our God, and he deserves everything we can give him. And with this kind of a God on our side, do you think we can be courageous? Can a God on our side like this take care of our enemies? Would Isaiah 34, 1 through 4 be decent thinking matter while you're being chained to a post before they light the, the sticks to burn you up? Oh, yes, because this is how the martyrs talk in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, you can understand these verses now that you know the context. How do we know the context? Verses 5 and 6. How do we know that it's Nebuchadnezzar? Jeremiah 25, 27, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 35, and about 10 other places. Verse 4, And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth from off the vine, and as a falling fig from off the fig tree. There are cataclysmic political events coming that are going to be as easy for God to accomplish as a leaf falling off a vine or a fig falling off a fig tree. And it is going to be so dramatic, it is going to be like the stars not shining and falling to earth because all your kingdoms are coming down. This is the words of the Lord. This is, this, these are the words of the prophet. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. Now, if for those of you that think, learn, and want to remember, we use Isaiah 34 as a backup chapter to Isaiah 13 when we want to explain to someone the figurative language of the Bible. Because look at verse 4. In verse 4, the host of heaven are the stars. Did the stars dissolve? No. But do stars, sun, and moon stop giving their light on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? And do you know what Charismatics will say? Well, obviously, Acts 2 hasn't happened. I mean, Joel 2, that's quoted by Peter, hasn't happened yet because the moon's still shining. That's because they missed the... Oh, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Same kind of language. And we can come to Isaiah 13 and show them, look at it, it says the burden of Babylon, and it says the Medes did it. That's a long time ago. We can bring them to Isaiah 34. Notice, it's about Idumea, the Greek and Roman word for Edom, or the descendants of Esau. And Nebuchadnezzar destroyed them. And by the reign of Trajan, there were no Edomites left on earth. So this event happened sometime in the past, so it's figurative. Did you understand all that? It's figurative. And so we remember a passage like this. It's figurative. We don't need to st stars to literally dissolve. It's just strong language. The earth is turned upside down. Have you ever said something like that? The world's upside down. 
Is it really? What's the right side up? Would you, is it the North Pole to top or the North Pole to bottom? We say things like that. And so, the, so does the Lord. The second section, verses 5 through 8. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. Amen and amen. amen. What is the controversy of Zion? When I had to chasten my people. When I had to chasten my people. You ought to read all the other, all the other prophets about this event. When I had to chasten my people for their sins, and I did it in love, and I was going to correct them and bring them back to their land, you jumped on that event. You jumped on them in their time of calamity. You had no compassion for your brother, and you took advantage of them. You have no idea what I'm going to do to you for that. Amen. Do you like having a God that is your father like that? Yes. That when someone messes with you about your religion, wow! Oh, those martyrs knew it. Brother, they had courage. It fit perfectly. Right. It's one God. Right. There's, lots of, there's lots of talkers. And the Lord takes care of all of us. They messed, with, they messed with Jacob, and they shouldn't have messed with Jacob. The king of Edom should have sent to Moses, you come into our land and take as long as you want. You can use the king's highway. You can take any side roads you want. All the exits are going to be open. open. We're going to give you white glove service by the sheriff's department. You just come in, drink from our wells, eat our flocks, offer them in sacrifice. Oh, it would have gone better for Edom. Love your brethren. Love your brethren. When you have a grudge against anyone in this room, you're Esau. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be terrible. You say, well, nothing's happened yet. Nothing happened for a thousand years to Esau. He prospered. He had 12 dukes. Powerful nation. Prospered. Known for their riches. Known for their security. But only so long. The Lord will come in vengeance. Okay, let's look at this second section. God in vengeance cursed Edom. His sword was bathed in heaven. My sword shall be bathed in heaven. This is a decree from the watchers coming down from the top. The decree is for blood, and it's coming from heaven. This is not some earthly idea. This is not just Nebuchadnezzar. This is a, an intergalactic war. This is a heavenly war being fought on earth. This, he is my sword, and it's bathed with blood in heaven by my decrees. I have made him great. I have raised up Nebuchadnezzar, and I am going to dip my sword through Nebuchadnezzar into Idumea, and I'm going to make me a sacrifice. I'm going to get me some honor and glory out of the land of Edom by sacrificing them like animals. And so we have the terms of animal sacrifices being the Edomites, because this isn't really about animals. This is about the people of the Edomites in these verses. So verse 5, my sword by my, my heavenly decree is, shall be bathed in heaven because it is divine, it's righteous, and it's from my eternal decrees. It shall come down upon Idumea out of heaven through Nebuchadnezzar and upon the people of my curse, the Edomites, the Esauites, the descendants of Esau, those that I hate to judgment. I will judge them. Verse 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It's bloody because he's killing all these sacrifices. It is made fat with fatness, the fatness of animal sacrifices, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. This is, this is slaughterhouse. This is a slaughterhouse that took place in Israel every single day inside that tabernacle where those animals were killed and put on the altar and burned. They had parts divided and separated there. It was a mess. There were flies. It was stinky. There was blood everywhere. It was splattered. They had to have a huge wash bowl there to wash because it was an ugly religion. 
because it was the, because it was the best picture that God could make at that time for how ugly sin is and how sin is paid for by an ugly blood. And when Jesus hung on the cross, it was ugly and there were flies and it stunk and it was bad because of sin. And these sinners didn't have a substitute on the cross of Calvary for them, so they are the sacrifice. And so the terms are all about the sacrificial system of religion. The Lord, the last part of verse 6, the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra, the capital of the land, and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. Nebuchadnezzar is coming. He is my sword. It's my will from heaven that's going to dip in blood and tear this nation down and offer it as a sacrifice because I have a curse against them and I'm going to judge them for what they did to their brother. Are you all practicing brotherly love? I'm sorry, I just got to say it again. Are you practicing brotherly love? to your biological brothers and to your spiritual brothers especially. And the unicorns shall come down with them and the bullocks with the bulls. These are animals offered in sacrifice. Back in verse 6, it was lambs, goats, and rams. In verse 7, it's unicorns, bullocks, and bulls. You say, what's a unicorn? Why can't it be a buffalo? I'm waiting for the question. Were there buffalo in Edom? Yes. Does a buffalo sort of look like a unicorn? How many horns does a buffalo have? Rhinoceros? Are there certain antelope with one? The unicorns shall come down with them and the bullocks with the bulls. So we've got young bulls, we've got castrated bulls, we've got bulls that are not castrated or young. And they're all the animals that are brought down for sacrifice and they're being killed by the Lord, but it's not really animals, it's the people, it's the leaders, it's the Edomites, and their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. See, there's a day, there's a day for it. It's the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion, for the way they had treated Zion. Now it's time to pay up. Do, do you understand? In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, we have the martyrs of God under the altar of God in heaven. And they're saying this, How long? How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood on the earth? Just wait a little while until your brethren get to die as martyrs and come and join you. Then I will avenge your blood. That, that was the New Testament martyrs. These are the Old Testament church. Notice it's called the day of the Lord's vengeance in verse 8 and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the controversy is, I, I, the God of Israel, the God of Judah, had not turned against them. They were still my people. I was just chastening them. But you took advantage of them as enemies in the day of their calamity. That was a terrible misjudgment. It should make our church bold. If we're loving each other, and we're serving the Lord, and we're His people, and we love Him as being His people, we need fear no one. Because the Lord will take care of us. There'll be a day of vengeance. My wife... And I, I hope this might be helpful to you, just a tiny little bit. My wife, is, in her older age, is not quite as merciful as I am. Probably from living with me for 43 years. I'll, I'll get that out there. Sometimes she asks me, How can so-and-so get away with what they've done against the Lord, against their church, and against their family? You should know us better. It ain't about us. It's about you. It's about your families and people that have left our church and people that have defied the God of heaven. She says, why are they getting away with it? 
they aren't getting away with it. The Lord has a different timetable than we do. And the mercy he shows them is the mercy that we bask in every day of our lives. And so we, we have a discussion. I'm not picking on her a bit. I just want everyone by that example to think, you know, sometimes I've thought that. How can they get away with it for so long? How did Edom get away with it for a thousand years? <laughs> but, but I want you to notice there is a time of recompense and there is vengeance coming. And the fact that it doesn't fall immediately is why it hasn't fallen immediately on us. Because sometimes we deserve his vengeance in chastening, while others, you know, reprobates may deserve, will deserve, and do deserve his vengeance in eternal wrath. So we, we, see, we want to see the big picture, and we want to see how Esau and Edom and Idumea and Basra was protected and prospered for a long time. You know, talking to my brother yesterday, did Isaac bless Esau? Who got the big blessing? Jacob got the big blessing. But then after Jacob left, Isaac came in from the field and said, Here I am, Dad. And Isaac started shaking. Mm -hmm. Then who was just in here and took your blessing? And Esau, the mighty hunter before the Lord, mm -hmm. fell down and begged him, Do you have any leftovers in you that you can give me? And he begged him, and Isaac had some leftovers. And, you know, Isaac didn't have anything that God didn't give him. God gave Isaac some leftovers for Esau. And so Esau had a great nation and prospered in natural things, carnal things. No Messiah coming through him, but he did prosper for a long time. So I'm, I'm sharing all this, and I'm not picking on my wife. She's the better half of this marriage in, in every way but authority. But she and I have these discussions. And so I love verses like this. And so those martyrs, those martyrs were getting a little impatient. My wife has the heart of a martyr. They're in Revelation 6, 9 through 11 because they were asking, how long? How long do we have to wait? Well, just for your brother. I've got to get the rest of you martyrs here. And as soon as the last one checks in and we write his name down that he's made it, I will drop wrath on this world like you've never seen. Verses... Let's go to verses 9 through 15. Edom to be perpetually desolate. And the streams thereof. We're talking about Edom. This is what God's going to do to the Edomites, what God's going to do to the descendants of Esau for what they did against Jacob's descendants. What they did against their brother. The streams thereof shall be turned into pitch. Instead of it being water that nourishes and cools, it'll be turned into pitch or resin that burns, and the dust thereof into brimstone. The dust, instead of being fertile soil, will be turned into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. When the dirt is brimstone and the water is pitch, what do you have? Fire. Okay? It's very powerful language, graphic language. The fertile, productive land of Edom is going to be turned into brimstone and pitch, blazing pitch, fire. Nothing's going to be there. It's all going to be consumed. It shall not be quenched night or day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Now that's four terms of perpetuity. Four terms of perpetuity. First clause, not night nor day will it be quenched. Second clause, the smoke will go up forever. Third clause, from generation to generation, it shall be lie waste. Fourth clause, none shall pass through it forever and ever. And so when the Bible says that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever, don't think that it's just a year. You know, it's forever. It's eternal torment that's taught in the Bible in hell fire. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it. This land is going to be utterly wasted, and so the wild birds and animals are going to take over. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it. The owl also and the raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. He'll bring his plummet and his measure, and he will measure out Edom and destroy it with confusion and emptiness. He will wreck it completely, 
from what it was in the past. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom. You know, the, 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 the messages will go out, the telegrams, the emails will go out to call the nobles to Basra, but none shall be there because there won't be any nobles of, of Edom. And all her princes shall be nothing. I will get rid of the entire ruling class. I will get rid of the nation. It'll be a burning brimstone pitch field. I'm going to bring my plummet, my measure over it, and reduce it to nothingness and confusion. And thorns shall come up in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof, and it shall be an habitation of dragons and a court for owls. Wild animals, wild animals of the woods are going to take over the place. There'll be nothing there. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island. Those wild animals that like water, those wild animals that don't need much water, they're going to meet together and they're going to take over the land of Edom. They're going to possess it. And the satyr shall cry to his fellow. That can be a male goat. We went over this in Isaiah 13. I, I'm warning you, Isaiah 13 and 34 are very similar. They're like fraternal twins. Except they're two different objects. Isaiah 13 is against Babylon. This one's against Edom. And the satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. Because there'll be no person around to bother her. No boys with slingshots. No boys with BB guns. No one to bother these animals. They're going to possess a desolate wilderness land once called Edom. And it is that way today. There shall the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow. Her young ones is implied by ellipsis. There shall the vultures also be gathered, every one with her mate. They're going to be able to reproduce. No one's going to bother them. No one's going to disrupt their mating because there's no people around. They will possess the land of Esau. They will possess the land of Edom. And this is what God does to the enemies of his church. Amen. Was Jacob more righteous than Esau? Not by what we can read in the Bible. But did God make a choice? Because that's why it says, not according to works but according to the purpose of election. So it brings us to the last section. Eden would be perpetually desolate, verses 9 through 15. Verse 16, Ye nations, I've sent you a message. Seek ye out of the book of the Lord. Check the Bible and read. Check the book of Isaiah and read. No one of... Here's why I believe it's Isaiah. Along with all the books of God, because... There are so many prophets that make mention of Edom and the things that are going to happen to it. But notice what comes next. No one of these shall fail. Not a single thing that I've mentioned is not going to happen. Everything that I've mentioned is going to happen. None, no one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. Each one of those animals that I've identified are going to take over. The land of Edom are going to be there. Each one will be there and they'll have their mate. Or, if you would like to see a mystical, spiritual interpretation of those words, every one of my prophecies will have a matching fulfillment. It'll have its mate. For my mouth, it hath commanded. This judgment that I've described is commanded by Isaiah as the mouthpiece and the pen of a ready writer of Almighty God, and His Spirit, it, that is the judgment of this chapter, hath gathered them, that is the animals above, together to take over this place. Everything that happens here in Isaiah 34, God has commanded it. I've recorded it. I've preached it. I've written it. It's in his book. Remember Isaiah 30? Write it in a table and note it in a book that it may be to, for the time to come forever and ever. So if you want to see a fulfillment of God, and if you people think you're going to get away with rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, check the book. Make sure you write the animals down that are there because they're all going to show up. Isn't that powerful? Listen. When Jesus said to, de to the devil three times when he was under temptation, it is written. Do you know what the most important words in the world are? It is written. How do we know anything? We know there's a creator God because we can look at creation. But to get beyond that, how do we know there's an eternal hell? Have you been there? Do you have any friends that went there? Any YouTube clip? Yeah, yeah there are. Don't answer that one. There are some YouTube clips of guys that went to hell, came back. They want to tell you about it. Forget them. How do you know about hell? How do you know about Jesus Christ? 
How do you know about all the things that are out of sight? How do you know about a whole realm of angels? How do we know those things? It is written. It is written. It is written. So much is because of the book that God's given us or we would not know. And so it says, Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. What was Daniel doing in Daniel chapter 2? Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. 